how are you? Um, thank you for joining me uh, on the podcast. If you're downloading this right now or if you're live streaming on Facebook with me, uh, thanks for joining. Um, so let's jump into a few Q&As right now. I put in the description, um, both of the, we had a lot of great questions this week and I had to pick and choose. I'm realizing that uh, I'm trying to keep these bonus podcast uh, Facebook Lives down to you know 12 to 15 minutes. And they've been going about 30 plus, so pretty soon they're going to turn into their own episodes that'll go an hour or so. Um, So let's keep this short and get right into it. So I'm picking two questions today. Both of them came from Marie. Um, And I don't think I tagged you correct yet, but I will get you tagged in there, Marie. So hopefully you're going to watch this. Um, She has two good questions. And uh, Marie is in our NLP Mastery um, uh, program. She's going through the home study, getting ready for a long course we have next week. And she had a couple NLP related questions. So here we go. Thank you, Joy. I appreciate that. She said that you're healing now. I sure am. <laughs> I sure am. All right. First question is this. She says this. Um, when am I going to read it off the computer here? When uh, there's a reference to VACOG. So that's V-A-K-O-G. That's NLP speak for our five modalities, which are visual, auditory, kinesthetic, olfactory, and gustatory. Or in plain English, seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, and tasting. Whenever there's a reference to that, she said, it seems like there's never a list for gustatory or olfactory predicates or phrases. So she's referring to the absence of words we use in NLP to to connect with the smells and tastes of reality. And what I'm assuming this question is really about, she said, I know they're not commonly used in NLP, and but still, if I had a list of predicates, it would be great. Um, she said, I work with a lot of olfactory smells in my work. She's a doTERRA essential oils. Um, so consequently, I may have more clients in this category than others. And then she asked a good question. She said, um, since the sense of smell is linked to the oldest memories, uh, and I'll talk about that, emotions and fight or flight response, then why are we not including smell in more NLP work? Man, Marie, first off, can I say that is such a good question. So thank you so much for asking that. Um, There's a couple ways I want to approach this. Number one, for the beginner person, the very beginner NLP person, um, when we talk about VACOG, there's two different references to this. Okay, the first reference is, again, visual, auditory, kinesthetic, olfactory, gustatory, and that all relates to how we construct reality. So it's about taking in the information um, in one of those five senses. Now, there's a sixth piece, right? So that's five and one, sixth piece, which is what we call AD or auditory digital. So when it comes to the construct of reality, think of it like this. We take in the world around us uh, all through our five senses, the VACOGs, and we use our auditory digital as a sixth, almost interpretive piece. So we, we filter them through that AD and we begin to, we put self-talk. Um, connected to what it is. So you touch something and then you say, ooh, that was cold. Well, that's going to continuously filter a little bit. I like the uh, the metaphor of imagine that your brain is like a Mars rover. And, you know, the scientists sitting at NASA, um, they're, they're, they're piloting the Mars rover, but they don't really think they're actually on Mars, right? They're not really experiencing Mars. What they're experiencing is the perceptions of Mars. They're They're taking in data from Mars, but they're not actually on Mars, right? So for us, I think it's really similar in a lot of ways where we're not actually experiencing, um, we're not actually experiencing what's here on the earth, like we're not actually touching it as far as our brains go, our reality goes. What we have more accurately is that we, we touch something with our hands and think of, of kinesthetic as a data collection device. 
think of, of your smell or your sight as a data collection uh, device. It's no different than a camera on the Mars rover. Or if there was sound in space, it would be the, uh, taking in sound. Or if it grabs a rock and it analyzes the consistency. The scientist doesn't think it's actually touching the rock, but it can get data from the rock. Okay, So your AD, your auditory digital, is that scientist which is going through the data and sifting through it. Okay. There's a second place where these VACOG, the senses, come into play. And specifically, it's with something we call representational systems, or rep systems for short. Representational systems, um, traditionally we teach them as VAK, visual auditory kinesthetic. So Marie's question about why don't we use, um, sorry, why don't we use olfactory and why don't we use gustatory is a great question. So let me answer that. Um, traditionally in old school NLP, they would actually include not just visual auditory kinesthetic, they'd also include uh, auditory digital or AD as a fourth rep system. So we teach rep systems as four different systems that people interact with and communicate with people in the world. So they would call in the old days, they'd call that a four tuple. It's the four different systems. And we apply that to strategies in NLP, which is something, you know, if you have questions about that or you've gotten into NLP, we can talk about that on another episode. Um, but for right now, I want you to consider that when we talk about rep systems, there's the four that we use and we exclude the two. The reason we exclude the two gustatory and olfactory, taste and smell, is because we're talking about not just rep systems, but primary rep systems. The idea is all of us engage with all of these to some extent, right? All of us, unless you, you physically lack a, a, a sense of smell or taste, which certainly some people do, every human interacts with all of the rep systems to some extent. Even blind people have been known to see pictures in their mind, and even uh, someone who's deaf can still hear sounds in their mind, even if they're not actually getting the data from outside, right? So we all have those senses somewhere external and or internal. The percentage of people in the world that are primarily olfactory or gustatory is less than one one hundredth of one percent of the people. And that sounds like a small number. I guess it depends if you consider it towards, you know, seven billion, uh, almost eight billion people in the world, then maybe that's a large number. Uh, so it certainly depends on how you look at it. Here's what I found is in my entire life, in the last 15 years studying and teaching neurolinguistic programming, I think I ran into one person who may have been primarily olfactory, um, maybe one. And, and I don't even know if that was the case, but it seemed like it, right? It was someone, a friend of mine who used to work for me. And I remember coming back from trips and I'd bring, you know, like uh, trinkets or um, what they, souvenirs. Thank you. I I say, uh, put it in the comments. What's the word I'm looking for? Souvenirs. And I remember bringing back like, a souvenir from Hawaii one day and he grabs it. And the first thing he did before he even looked at it or played with it or, you know, fiddled around, he took it and brought it right up and went, Ooh, neat. And he smelled it and thought, oh, that smells great. And, you know, again, all of us at times might smell something, right? Um, sometimes, uh, so for Marie's question too, um, the truth is when, uh, when you go in context, when you go in a certain area in life, so let's just say I was going to go make a decision on what to eat. Well, in that case, my gustatory or my olfactory might kick into gear and that might become important to me in that moment. But if I'm going to go try on clothes, maybe my kinesthetic kicks in and how something feels is more important. And if I'm going to find art for the house, right? Here's a, a painting. You see that in the background? My wife Lola picked out. She loves that. I think she's, you love it still, honey. I think so. It's a horse painting. Yeah, but really cool. Check that out. So cool. Anyway, uh, to look at that, if you're looking for art for the house, well, hey, maybe, you know, visual becomes more important in that moment. Is that making sense? So um, in context, any of the representational systems can become more important than the others. 
The reality, though, is to find someone with a primary rep system of olfactory gustatory is almost non-existent. The other part of Marie's question is, because smell is linked to our oldest memories, emotions, fight or flight, etc., and I know she's referring to, so um, when, when it comes to data collection, when you, when you take in the different senses, olfactory actually has literally the physically shortest route. Um, it goes directly into the base of the brain um, and into the, what they'd call the reptilian area of the brain right near the medulla oblongata and the, the sense of smell goes right in there, right? So it's one of those fight or flight, like she said, it's, it's survival. It's something that, that uh, we, it is the oldest of our senses potentially. And depending on how you believe humans have evolved over the years, that's definitely one of uh, the oldest sense. So how does that play into here? Well, if I said to you, hey, do you smell what the rock is cooking? Well, one, you might know that I am no longer a closet pro wrestling fan, but two, more importantly, you would probably know, <laughs> I love doing this, um, but you'd probably, if your olfactory is a, is a primary rep system, you're probably not going to all of a sudden go, oh my gosh, I'm so engaged because he said smell or, you know, yummy or something like that. So using the words isn't going to engage those anymore. Um, moreover, Maria, what I would suggest is if you're doing doTERRA, like doing essential oils, just the smells themselves, right? So knowing that the smell is, is the oldest of our senses and, and it has the, the clearest, shortest, direct neurological path to our brains, what we want to do is use real smells, right? Not just like talk about smells. So if that's important to you, if you're a chef in, in restaurant, there's no shortcut for... Um, for giving samples. There's no shortcut for smelling the oils. Um, with that said, could you use predicates? Well, yeah, like if I'm a restaurant and, well, you know, I got a better, a better example. I love watching the Food Network. Do you? Right? Can you beat Bobby Flay? Who's the next Food Network star? These are great shows, right? Gordon Ramsay. And one of the things they were teaching, and see, I knew I'd get some love for that, right? Thank you, guys. Um, but one of the things they'll teach, I love watching the next Food Network star because I watch people come alive on stage and begin to embrace their own personality and their own leadership and how they show up. And something they kept coming back to uh, for the season I watched was descriptors for food. What? How do you describe food? And so many of us go, oh, it's really good. Oh, it's just so, it's just tasty. And those weren't useful. So they started picking words like, oh, you can, you can really uh, taste the savory uh, in, in, in the bacon there, but you can, um, there, there's, there's a heat and a spice to that chili that's in there. And you'd use like spice words or savory words, or you can see the sweetness. It's a creamy texture. They use texture words. Um, so if you run a restaurant or you're a Food Network star or something like that, Getting some gustatory predicates would probably be useful for you, um, but for the everyday person in the in the in everywhere else in the world, unless you're in the context where this is specifically your thing, um, they're not going to be anywhere near as important. So um, I hope that answers your question a little bit. If you have any more questions, Marie, um, feel free to ask and uh, when you come to the class next week, and, and we'll chat about it. All right, um, second quick question. I'll see if I can get through this uh, relatively fast. In her, and this comes also from Marie. She said, in mind mapping, I'm oh, sorry, not mind mapping, in mapping across, she said, uh, Matt, you mentioned to, to look for a kinesthetic change. A, what does that mean? And then B, what if you're doing sessions on the phone, right? So in mind mapping, I keep saying mind mapping. What am I doing? I love mind mapping, but I'm talking about a technique in NLP called mapping across. So real briefly, the technique of mapping across is primarily used as an internal visual technique. It's a thing where we'll have someone imagine, um, get a picture in their mind of maybe how, how much they like a certain food, 
and then they'll get a picture in their mind of how much they dislike another food, and then we'll have them shift those pictures around in their unconscious and in their imagination. And the result is generally they'll start shifting how they feel about the other food uh, because they shifted how they picture it in their minds. So there's other ways to do uh, mapping across. There's actually kinesthetic ways and, and, and a lot of different ways to do it. Um, but the primary way we teach in the home study she's referring to is kind of a visual one. So the first question is, how do you notice a kinesthetic change? Well, what we're talking about is when you do any kind of a shift with someone, if you're, if you're a coach and you're doing any kind of practitioner work, and, and the truth is in, in any realm of life, right, as a parent, you want to watch the kid for, uh, you're, we're always looking for a shift of understanding. I was just talking to Val today, you know, he had, he had a little note, he got sent home from school and they said, well, you know, he got in trouble for something. So as I'm talking to him about the importance of it, I'm talking about well, what happened and we know, you know, in my house, you can imagine we talk about the intention behind the behavior, um, what caused it to happen, what are you learning from this? Cause I don't want him to feel like he's just getting in trouble because I want him to understand like whether or not that's okay. And then how we have this conversation, what I'm looking for always though, is I'm looking for a kinesthetic shift. I'm watching the face, the body, the breathing, um, the eye patterns. I'm watching all these things. Um, to, to, you're looking for recognition, right? So what happens is uh, this is used in lie detection a ton, right? You'll get a baseline for someone and just watch how they react, how much or how little they move, what they do with their eyes and so forth. And then you start asking questions. And then they'll start answering questions, but they'll usually kind of maintain the same, uh, the same baseline. But then all of a sudden they, they say something they're not confident in the answer of. And sometimes not being confident in the answer means you're lying, but don't jump to conclusions. Sometimes not being confident in an answer just means you're not confident in an answer. So if that's the case, the person will, will have a, some kind of a physiological shift. Maybe their breathing will speed up or it might slow down. They might itch their nose or they might not. You know, it's funny. Um, itching nose, this is going into lie detection, which is not the topic, but anyway, it's fun. Um, an itchy nose has been said a lot as, um, as something that's um, uh, a telltale sign for a lie. And it's not actually true at all. Um, if, if someone never itches their nose when they're talking and then all of a sudden they start getting really itchy, hey, maybe that's something. But for me, it's funny. When I talk, you'll see me like, on, in fact, right now, <laughs> um, but it, it might be um, the cold. But all, my nose will itch kind of throughout sometimes, and so, I don't know, maybe if my nose stopped itching, you know, um, it would be something. If somebody's moving their leg quite a bit, they're like doing this little like kind of twitching thing, you know, just rotate my phone, come back. If you're doing a little twitchy thing like this, and then all of a sudden I stop, and I get really still, like maybe that's a telltale sign, so... Um, this, this, again, the subject's not lie detection, but the point is we're watching for kinesthetic change. And I think lie detection is a good analogy or example of where we use that. So you're always, again, looking for a physiological shift. So her question was not just that, it was, what if you're doing a session on the phone? How do you find a kinesthetic shift then? How do you, you can't watch them? Well, number one, um, when I'm doing phone sessions, I very often, I'm going to avoid a lot of certain NLP techniques. Um, like I'm probably not going to do parts integrations. Um, maybe I wouldn't do mapping across. I, I wouldn't do practitioner quote unquote work, um, on the phone. I'm going to do it over zoom or Skype, um, or I'm going to do it in person. That's just me. Cause for me, from an NLP perspective, I think watching the person and being able to observe them is oh gosh, almost as important as, as what they say or what you say, if not more important. Um, I, we mentioned when we teach rapport in NLP, there's a, um, a real um, 
uh, famous paper from 1967 from Albert Morabian called Decoding of, <coughs> excuse me, Decoding of Inconsistent Communications. And, and Morabian has been quoted widely. He's the one who came up with the idea that people say communication is 55% kinesthetic, um, 38% tonality, and 7% words. Some of you have probably heard that before. What doesn't get taught often and is more accurately the truth and Morabian is actually quoted being almost upset about this, people misunderstand his study all the time. It wasn't a study about um, how much communication is physical, tonality, or, or words. It was a study about the emotions behind communication and whether or not the emotions are consistent with the words that are being communicated. So he was, he was explaining that, listen, if, if you try to communicate, I love you, but you say it like this, I love you, okay? and you roll your eyes and you look away and your lips are tense, what happens is that person does not receive the I love you emotion that you meant to communicate. And I don't know if you meant to communicate it or not, if you said it like that. So that's what's happening with, uh, with, with the communication itself. So knowing that, right, when I'm looking for kinesthetic change, 55% is kin um, um, body language, but we still have 38% tonality, 7% word. So you're looking at 45% total uh, it was Stephen. Yeah, Stephen just said, I didn't know the study was about emotions. Yeah, most I'm going to like that. Boom. It most certainly was. It, it was about emotions, but it was about inconsistent emotions with communication. So he noticed that someone could say the same words, but with a different tonality. And the tonality would actually make more impact on what emotion got conveyed than the words themselves. And physiology made even bigger of an impact. So when you're looking for physiological shifts or kinesthetic shifts and you're watching people, um, gosh, there's no substitute for, for seeing someone or even being in the room is ideal because you can be in the room and you can notice little nuances of how they cross their legs or how their feet move or not, or, um, where they sit, how close or how far away. There's, there's so many pieces where even on video, a little bit gets missed like on Skype and there's a little lag sometimes in the delay. So if I'm doing practitioner work, I'm in person. Um, I'll do Skype as well if they're far away. Um, and then for phone, I'm mostly doing coaching work. So that's my short answer, um, Marie, is that um, I'm going to do coaching work on the phone, but practitioner or change work in person or on Skype. Um, with all that said, if you're only doing things on the phone, hey, you know, you can still pay attention to 45% of their communication. So as I'm doing a mapping across or a swish pattern or whatever technique, I could say, okay, go ahead and move that picture over, go ahead and lock it in place, and now... Go ahead and tell me, how does it feel different right now compared to how you used to feel? And I'm going to listen to their words, and I'll do my very best to, uh, to at least notice if they sound different than they did before. So that's my medium to long answer on, uh, on what do you do if you're doing sessions on the phone. The reality is, do them uh, in person so you can see the person around Skype. That's so, so important. Feedback. In fact, um, it's been quoted that communication is only equal to the feedback that you receive. So if you can't get the feedback or you're missing 55% of the feedback, then you don't really know what you're communicating and you might be missing something. So anyway, I hope this was helpful. Um, I knew I'd only be able to get to a couple of questions and here it is. It's already 20 minutes in. So have a great day and uh, see you real soon. Bye.